Romans chapter 10 this morning. I'd like to read the first ten verses of Romans chapter number 10. Paul writing says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I want you to look back at verses 2 and 3 with me. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the preciousness and the truth of Your Word. Lord, we thank You that it's always true, that it always will be true, that it's settled forever in heaven. Lord, that You'll always preserve it. Lord, that You'll always keep it. We pray now that this Word, that is an engrafted Word, that is a true Word, an inspired Word, would be made real in our hearts and lives. And Lord, that through it, that through this sword, the Spirit of God may be able to do work in us this morning. Father, we thank You for the good times that we've had over this past week. Lord, for the revival services, I want to praise You for the work that You did in my life and in the lives of others. Now help us, Lord that this good work might be continued this morning and heretofore after. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm very interested in what Paul says about the Jewish people in verse number 2. He makes this statement about the Jewish nation. He bears them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. You know, in this world that we live in, we like the idea uh, that we live a persecuted life. And we have the idea sometimes you'll say, you know, people of faith are disdained and persecuted in this world that we live in. But as I look around, I find this, that it's not faith that is disdained so much as it's Jesus Christ that is disdained in this world that we live in. In fact, faith seems to be lifted up. I know there are some in the scientific community that would scoff and laugh at the notion of faith, but the average everyday person, be he in the church house, or be he in the world, or be he in politics, seems to have no quandary, no qualm, no issue with the idea of being a person of faith. We've never had, to my knowledge, an atheistic president. Somebody say amen to that. Now, well, let me try that again. Come on, help me this morning. We've never had an atheistic, at least not a professing atheistic president. Am I right? Somebody say amen. You see, it's not that people are uncomfortable with the idea of faith. It's not that people are uncomfortable with the idea of religion. What people have a problem with is the cross of Calvary and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what this world has such an issue with. Let me say this, that when you look at the Jewish people, they have no problem with the idea of faith. They have no problem with the idea of religious fervor and worship. They have no problem with the idea of denying self in the name of ritualism. It's not all of these things, not the religion of the matter that the Jews have a problem with, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ that they have a problem with. Paul is unveiling to us throughout the book of Romans that great doctrinal treaty. He is showing us how that the grace of God has abounded unto all of humanity, but how in abounding unto all of humanity, it's not left behind the Jewish person. How that right now the nation of Israel lives under judicial blindness. You say, what is judicial blindness, preacher? Well, uh, that's when God knows that you don't know and He allows you to not know uh, for the purpose of punishment or sovereignty. The Jewish nation, the preacher said it on Monday night, if the Jewish nation is the light of this world, there ain't much light in this world. Somebody say amen to that. Right, listen, I'm not, I'm not anti-Israel. And by the way, I'm not neutral on Israel either. Somebody say amen to that. I'm pro-Israel. Uh, I'm not against Israel. I'm not against the Jewish people. But I am conscious of this, that in the reading of Moses, there is a veil over their face. The Jews, by and large, are steeped and trapped in secularism. Those that are not trapped in dead orthodoxy are trapped in secular humanism in this day that we live in. And the Jewish people as a whole have judicial blindness upon their lives. God's going to begin to reveal to us in chapter number 10, though, that judicial blindness does not trump the invitation of God to the individual. That's encouraging me today. You know why? Because I believe America's under judicial blindness, too. It just don't make a lot of sense. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to this preacher that a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian and biblical principles 250 years ago, and if you don't believe that, go ahead and just study up a little history. It was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. It just does not make a lot of sense to this preacher this morning that a short 250 years later, which may be our entire history, but to the most of the world, that's nothing but a five-minute wait, that in 250 years, America could have turned her back on God in such a way. 48 million unborn children have been murdered. Uh, Sexual identity has been obliterated. Perversion is running rampant. Morality has hit the bottom of the gutter. How could such a thing happen? We look back at the good old days, and I'm going to say something. I don't know if, if this will make sense. I don't know if you'll like this or not, but we all like to talk about the good old days, and we like to talk about the men of God from good old days. Can I say to you that I, I know better preachers than walk the earth, a lot of those preachers in the good old days. If preaching is what we're looking at, let me tell you something. There's more good preachers in shoe leather today than there has ever been in this country. We have more opportunity today than we have ever had in this country. You understand, there was a time, listen, uh, when a man of God would get up and preach a simple message. There wouldn't be a lot of flash to it. There wouldn't be a lot of biblical exposition to it. But he'd take a truth and he'd mount that truth and he'd ride it uh, to the gates of hell and he'd bring back with him six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty-five lost sinners that were there on the brink. Today, we've got more good preachers walking around in shoe leather. We, we've got, I mean, listen, we can get on the Internet. We can, we can thunder our sermons all across the entire world. In a blink of an eye, it can go anywhere. We have more uh, more uh, promotion of the gospel today than we ever. We have more money to promote the gospel today than we have ever had in history. And yet, America is getting darker and darker. How could that happen, preacher? I believe America is under judicial blindness. I believe that though America is under judicial blindness... I believe, thank the Lord, that the individual doesn't have to stay blind. Listen, I wouldn't be here this morning if I believed God couldn't save sinners. 
I believe that God is still able to work in the hearts and the lives of the individual. And in the same way, though Israel may be under judicial blindness today, still the individual Jew can still believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby be saved. And Paul is revealing these truths to the Roman believers and showing them where the Jew occupies within all this. And no doubt the Roman believers were scratching their heads and asking themselves, how could it be that a group of people like the Jews whom God has done so much for, how could they reject the Lord of glory? But you know, as I sit here today, I'm conscious of this, that you and I, we have greater things even than the Jews enjoyed. We have a completed Word of God. We have the indwelling and working of the Holy Ghost Armaments. We have the New Testament church. We have the preaching of the Word of God. We have the songs of Zion that God has blessed the church. And by the way, I believe God has blessed the church with music. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, you know, sometimes we make too little of it. I know some places that make too much of it. Let me tell you something. God uses music, and there's no question about that in the Word of God. Hey, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Amen. We have all of these things, and yet in spite of that, you know, there's still some that have a great zeal of God, but there has been no change in their life, and they have never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the religion that they reject, it's the Son that they reject. And I want us to notice a few things this morning about what it means to be zealous but lost. You know, we're here in the Bible Belt. We probably take it for granted. I'm just going to be honest. It's always funny to me because... You know, uh, we, we get people that come and when we've got people in this room that, that live their whole lives up north or, or, or in some other area. And, and, you know, they come to this area and we've had this happen more than once. Somebody come to the area and they come and, and, and they're from up north and, and they visit our church. And, you know, well, preacher, we like it. You know, we're going to do a little bit of visiting around. And uh, then they come back, you know, uh, maybe five, six months later and their eyes are big. And we say, well, where you been? Well, we've been visiting around and they're full of war stories. And they're saying, preacher, I didn't know, you know, what's an independent Baptist church up north ain't necessarily what an independent Baptist church down south is. You know, by and large, you get up in the Midwest, you get up in the northern parts of the country, you walk into a church that says independent Baptist, you know what you're walking into. But I've got news for you. In this part of the country, we've got so many churches. We've got churches everywhere. You can throw a tennis ball and hit a church. You can spit and hit a church. Just because it says it on the sign, that don't mean it says it with its walk. Somebody say amen to that. And, uh, you know, everywhere we look, we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I mean, everywhere we look, there's churches. Everywhere we look, there's... And still, you could walk up and down the streets of Knoxville, Tennessee. You could find people. They've got a church home. They've got a service that they do supposedly unto God. But to know anything of God's precious Son, they know absolutely nothing. They are zealous. They're not bad people. They're not immoral people. I mean, there may be people in this room today that's like that. You're not a bad person or you wouldn't be here on Time Change Sunday. Somebody say amen to that. You're not a bad person. It's not that you hate God. It's not, but you know there's something missing in your life. How terrifying it would be to know that a person could sit in a church pew for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and die and go to a devil's hell. But that's the reality of it. For when we look at the Jew, we see a bunch of people that have a zeal of God but still, Paul said, my prayer is that they might be saved because they're lost and undone without him. I wonder what that zeal looked like. Turn back to chapter number 9. I want you to notice a couple things with me. Look at the beginning of chapter number 9. Now, chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans are dealing with the Jewish people. And Paul sort of begins chapter 9 the way he begins chapter 10. I mean, sort of. It's similar. He says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. 
For I could wish myself that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he begins with his burden for the Jewish people. And then I want you to notice what he says here. Now he's talking about the Jews and he says, who are Israelites? What does he mean? Who are the sons of Jacob? Who are the children with an heritage? Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? I mean, listen, God looked at Abraham and, and that nation that would issue from uh, Abraham. And he said, of all the people in the world, they're going to be my people. And I'm going to be their God. And the glory, the Bible says, no other nation got to enjoy the Shekinah glory of God, sat down in the midst and the mercy seat of the tabernacle the way that the Jewish people did. And the covenants, time and again, God made promises to the Jewish people. And the giving of the law, it wasn't given to us Gentiles, but from Sinai, God thundered the Old Testament law to the Jewish people. And the service of God, the Gentiles didn't get to enjoy the Levitical priesthood and going in and ministering before God. And the promises, all the things that God said He would do for him. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. That's Paul's description of the station of the Jewish people. Let me say this, that the Jews had privilege above any other nation. Let me tell you, as you sit here today, you and I, we have privilege. You You know the problem, we have too much privilege for our own good. I mean, we can't stand prosperity, and prosperity is killing us. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, we live in a world where prosperity is just at every corner. Listen, I know there may be things that you want, but chances are as you sit here today, there's not much that you need. Because all of our needs seem to be met. We sit here today. Uh, we didn't have to go through any checkpoints to come into the house of God today. We didn't have to go under cover of darkness. We sat here today, and if you're like me, you've got a Bible in your hand, but you've got one in your car, you've got one on your nightstand, you've got several on the bookshelf. We have the completed Word of God. Not only do we have the completed Word of God, but we have a prevalence of the completed Word of God. If we didn't have it in leather, we'd still have it in technology and on our phones. And everywhere we go, we have pieces of the Word of God injected into our life. Man, we've got privilege. Uh, there's places, there's people, and some of you may have had to have done this in times past. There's folks this morning, I'm talking about in these United States of America, had to drive two hours to find a place where folks would worship God. And yet most of us, if you're like me, I drove about 25 minutes to get here. Some of y'all drove closer, maybe a little farther away. But most of us, it wasn't any great leap to be able to get out of bed and get to the house of God. We are privileged in this day that we live in. I want you to notice they were privileged. Look down at the end of chapter number 9. I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse number 30. He says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, now I want you to notice this next phrase, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. I want to say the Jews had privilege, but the Jews also had purity. The Bible says that they followed after the righteousness of the law. Now, again, we, we're used to, I mean, we're plugged into this New Testament day of grace, and we're always used to looking at the Old Testament law with sort of an air of disdain, sort of a condescending and patronizing attitude. Hey, that, that law, it's been done away with. We're under grace, praise God. And that's true. We are under grace. And I'm not trying to say that we're not. But I am saying this, that the Old Testament Jews would have been a people unlike any other people. You understand that for the vast majority of their history, uh, when the entire na- when the nations around them didn't observe a-, a monogamous and holy relationship, they appreciated marriage. 
in a day when uh, the people around them were, were passing their children through the fire under their pagan gods, the Jewish people were circumcising theirs and dedicating them to the holy service and work of God, raising them up as a heritage unto the Lord. There were times in the Jewish history when the paganism and hedonism of the world crept in. But by and large, if you had looked at them as a people group compared with the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Edomites or the people that were around them, the Phoenicians, you would have seen a pure people. You would have seen a people where not just anything went. You understand that most of the pagan societies and nations around this time, their worship was intermingled with that which is sensual and lurid. And yet here are the Jewish people, so high and so holy is their worship. Listen, the pagan gods were so lurid and base and low that naked bodies writhing in a pile would please them. But the holy God of Jehovah was so righteous that if a man with even the smallest, darkest speck of sin in his heart was to enter into his presence, he'd be smoked dead at that moment. I'm saying it was night and day the way the Jews were versus the world around them. They had purity. They weren't an immoral people. They had their moments. I'm not denying that. They certainly were not perfect, but they had purity. You might say it this way. They were good folks. They were good. They weren't the guys hanging out down at the bar on Saturday night. They weren't the folks, listen, they weren't the folks that, that, that was, I mean, sharing beds with one. I mean, they were, they were pure people. They had purity. Let me say this. Look at chapter 10. We've already read it, but I want you to notice it again. It says in verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Now, when we read that, we just read excitement. But let me say this. They not only had privilege and purity, but they as a people had passion for the things of God. We think of purity or we think of passion and zeal as just being a childlike excitement. But rather, it was a dedication that drove them to the very most extremes. To this day, if you were to go over into Jerusalem, you'd find some that gather three times a day there at the Wailing Wall. And back and forth they'll rock and loud they'll cry for the restoration of Israel, for the rebuilding of the temple. Daniel, we know, is pictured as doing something similar in Daniel chapter number 7 when he three times a day opened his window and prayed towards Jerusalem. This was a group of people that there was only so many steps they could take on the Sabbath. There was only so many things they could do on the Sabbath. This was a group of people that their garments had to be such a length. Their hair had to be such a way. Their, uh, their uh, household items had to be such a way. Their cleaning process had to be such a way. I mean, if you were to ever find a rigid group of people, it was the Jewish people. They were devoted. I'm talking about the kind of devotion they had makes our poor, pitiful Sunday morning, uh, maybe Sunday night, and uh, very rarely Wednesday night Christianity look like nothing. I'm talking about these were a devoted group of People And yet God looks at them and says this, sure, you've got a zeal. Sure, you have privilege. I've given you every opportunity. You have purity. I've made you a different people. You have passion. You're willing to serve. But what about your righteousness? They have a zeal of God, but the Bible says not according to knowledge. And they've gone about to establish their own righteousness. There might be some folks in this room today that, man, you've got everything lined up. People look at you and everything looks okay. But you know in the darkest depths of your heart that you're not right with God. You know at the very depth of your soul that you've never been born again, you've never asked Christ to forgive you. You know what you've got? You've got a form of godliness. To look at it from the outside, it looks just right. Listen, you know what kind of Bible to carry. You know what kind of clothes to put on. You know what kind of language to use. You know what the decorum is in the house of God. But to have any substance, any real relationship with God, if you were to pull that, uh, the fleshy folds of your heart, look within, it'd be black as the charred walls of hell and empty as a dead space inside. 
for there's nothing within and no real relationship. I know people in my life that are that way. There's people I'm burdened for and praying for that their problem is not that they're so wicked. Their problem is that they're so good. Somebody say amen to that. Christ Jesus came uh, not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. If a man won't realize he's a sinner, he can't be saved. If a person believes, uh, listen, if you're here today and you say, well, I've never been a bad person. Well, you're not the kind of person that God can save until you're willing to recognize that you are a bad person, that you've been a bad person, that you was born a bad person, and that you need Christ's salvation. Uh, hell, you've heard it said before, is full of nothing but good people, and heaven is full of nothing but bad people. People that have acknowledged that they were insufficient and Christ must save them. And hell is full of people that thought they was good enough to get to heaven. I don't know very many people, in fact, I can't think of anyone really, to be honest, that I know personally that knows they're on their way to hell and does not care. Most of them, if they know they're on their way to hell, what they think is, well, that's what you think, but that's not what I think. That means this, that hell is primarily full of people that didn't think they'd be there. Primarily full of people that thought they was good enough to get to heaven in and of themselves. What could have changed their life? I want you to notice three things and then I'll hush. Look at verse number 3 again. The Bible says, or verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not what? According to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Let me say this, that for a sinner to be saved, and particularly for one of these that are zealous but lost, there are some things that must be seen before they'll ever be saved. You know, we, we have our own sort of religion that we all build up. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a good Christian. I don't care if you're a Bible believer. We all have certain things that we think God's a certain way because we want Him to be that way. But if we really looked at His Word, He'd be a lot different than we like to think He is. We call that the sacred calf or the golden calf in our lives. You know that when the uh, nation of Israel, when they came down, when Moses and Joshua came down off of Sinai and they had the tables of the law and Moses had taken and fashioned the golden calf, the people said, these be the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. But Aaron said, let us keep a feast unto the Lord. See, Aaron was just kidding himself. The people really knew what they was worshiping, but Aaron, he liked to think they were worshiping an image for Jehovah. And you know, we have a bad habit of doing that. There's a reason God said to not make any graven image to him. Listen carefully, because you don't know what he looks like. So you know what you're forced to do? You're forced to say, this is what I think God should look like. And that, we have a habit of doing that in our lives. We say, well, I think God should be this way. How many times have you heard someone say this? I just can't believe God would do that. Well, listen, neighbor, it don't matter what you believe. The question is, what does God's Word say? Every person that believes they're on their way to heaven of their own righteousness, you know why? It's because they've not really heard what God says about righteousness. What does God say about the condition of the moral but lost man? I want you to notice a few things. Notice, first off, God's sentence. The preacher sort of touched on it a little bit uh, on Friday night. But listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. Now, you've got to remember, this is Isaiah speaking, and he's speaking about Jewish people. He's speaking about moral people, and he says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. When God looks down at our best attempts, I'm not talking about our worst attempts. I'm not talking about God looks down at our worst days. I'm talking about when God looks down at our best days, He sees but filthy rags. That means every time that we've thought, 
well, I'll give a little money and that'll square me with God. God looks at it and it's disgusting to him. Every time that we thought, I'll go down, I'll work in a soup kitchen, or I'll volunteer, I'll do this, that'll make me square with God. God looks at it, and it's sickening to Him. That means, listen now, every time as believers, oh my, every time as believers that we've operated in the flesh, and we've done things not in surrender and submission to the Spirit of God, but done it rather out of our own flesh and our own craving and wanting for attention, God looks at it and He's sickened by it. That's God's opinion of the righteous but law, or the moral but lost man. That's what God sees. When He sees that person that says, well, you know, I know, preacher, I, you know, I know I've never been saved, but, you know, that's okay, I'm a pretty good person. There's a pretty famous person uh, running for president. Some of y'all probably voted for him. You know what he said? He said, I don't ask God for forgiveness. He said, I don't ask God for forgiveness. I just try to do a little better next time. Listen, I don't care if he's running for president or dog catcher. I don't care if he's a billionaire or he is a beggar on the street. When a man looks up to the God of heaven and says, I don't need to ask your forgiveness. I'll just do better the next time. I can do it on my own. God looks down and it makes him sick. Just filthy rags. We see God's sentence. But how could God say such a thing? You know, the human side of us would look at it and say, well, I'm trying my best. You know, how many people have you heard say that? Well, I do my best. Well, i got bad news for you, friend. Your best is not good enough. For how could God look at us and say your righteousness is but filthy rags? Well, we have to understand we've got to see, first off, God's sentence, but we've got to see God's standard to understand how God could say that. Listen to what it says in the book of James, chapter number 2 and verse 10. James says this, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, the whole law, Now, he didn't say the whole Ten Commandments. He said the whole law. You understand, uh, over 600 and some odd commandments in the Old Testament. Keep the whole law and yet offend in one point. He is guilty of all. For he that, you know, this is why. This is why. Because when we sin, we think a rule has been broken. We don't realize that a God has been offended. For he that said... Do not commit adultery, said also do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. You know why the moral but lost man, the zealous but unrighteous man, do you know why he thinks that way? Because he doesn't think he owes God anything in the first place. And he looks at it and he looks around and he says, Listen, I know I may not be perfect, but I'm better than this fellow over here. I know I may not be perfect, but I'm better than this gal over here. I know that I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most people I know. And you know what he cannot realize? He cannot realize that it's not a matter of bartering with God. It's not a matter of trying to impress God. It's not a matter of trying to do better the next time. Uh, The same God that said that thou shalt not kill is the same one that said thou shalt not commit adultery. And that very same God said the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Lust when it conceived bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The same God that pronounced death upon the little white lies, the same one that pronounced death upon first degree murder. And that's the very God that you've offended. God's standard for righteousness is not moral relativism. Somebody say amen right there. It's Listen, God's standard for righteousness, thank the Lord, is not the status quo of society. God's standard for righteousness in and of a man's own efforts is nothing short than absolute perfection embodied and shown to us in the person of His precious Son. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Christ. What did he say? 
He didn't say, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? How can I go to heaven? How can I be saved? You know what he said? He said, what must I do to be saved? And so the Lord told him. He said, keep every bit of the commandments. Observe everything, live in absolute perfection. And he, the man said, like most of us would, well, all these have I kept from my youth up. That's what he said. Which, by the way, did not address the problem of the sin nature. It didn't address, he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. But his sin went further than just his record. It had to do with his nature. But he was lying, like most of us do. He said, all these have I kept from my youth up. And the Lord looked at him and he said, one thing that thou lackest, sell all thou hast and give to the poor. And he said, you've asked too much. If he really loved the Lord God with all of his heart, he would have done it when God's son asked him. If he really loved his neighbor like unto himself, he would have done it when God asked it of him. But Christ got to the very heart of the matter, which is this. Despite all of the rules that he thought he was keeping, he had still offended a righteous and holy God. He had still fell short of the standard. See, it's no stretch to think that God would look at our righteousness as filthy rags when you understand that the only thing that's not filthy rags in the eyes of a thrice holy God is the perfection of His Son. I think you're going to have to see God's sentence and God's standard. But I think for you to ever be saved, one of these zealous but lost people, they're going to have to see God's sacrifice and understand what that means. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter number 3, verse 24 through 26. Being justified freely, freely, not of good works, not of our own righteousness, not of our own sacrifice, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare, listen carefully, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. I was reading the commentators. I was studying for this, and, and he said something. You know, you ever heard someone say something that sounded so smart that it took you a little while to realize it was dumb? Come on now, is everybody all right? I, listen, I know it's time change, it's rainy outside, but guess what? God's still on His throne. The Holy Ghost is still in our very hearts. The Word of God is still true, and it still preaches hard and hot and ready for our lives. Let's just worship Him this morning, am I right? And I was listening, I was reading this guy's commentary, and he said this. He said that Christ's life, the purpose of Christ's life was merely to satisfy the demands of the law but not to then take that perfect life and apply it on the account of the believer that has believed on him. And that sounded good. You know, when I read it, I thought, boy, that sounds smart. He was using big words that I can't even afford. I mean, it sounded good. But then I really got to think about it. I thought, you know, that's good and everything. There's only one problem. It's just not true. The Bible says to declare His righteousness for the forbearance of sins that are past. In other words, when God looks at me, He sees that the standard has been met. 
Apart from Jesus Christ, the standard can never be met. doesn't matter how good your good works are. Listen, I don't, it don't matter how deep or how long they baptize you. It don't matter how big or how small or how great or how rotten the church you're a member of is. It does not matter what good things that you've done. All of them fall short of the glory of God because only the Son has the fullness of His glory. Only the Son is the perfect example and representation of His righteousness. If that standard and that righteousness has not been applied to our lives, Everything else falls short. That's the only help and hope that we have. I think there's a few things that are going to have to be seen. But I think then once a man sees those things, there's a few things that are going to have to be surrendered. Look at what it says back in chapter number 10. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, listen to this next phrase, and going about to establish their own righteousness. I can't help but think of Adam and Eve there in the garden. And in the Garden of Eden, after they had sinned, after Adam had uh, partaken of the fruit, and mankind had spiraled into depravity, you know what the first thing they did was? They realized they were naked, they were ashamed, and they went and they gathered up fig leaves and they sewed them together to make a covering. You know, the only thing that Christ ever cursed was a fig tree in the New Testament. There's a lot of things that God's patient with, but self-righteousness is not something God is patient with. They gathered and they put all those things on them. And you know what? God still God saw right through that. He came along and He said, Where art thou, Adam? Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was naked. I was ashamed and I hid myself. And He said, Who told thee thou was naked? You ever thought about that question? Who told thee thou was naked? I think He's probably the same one that still tells the sinner today that he's naked and ashamed before a thrice holy God. I think the Spirit of God may know it's His business to convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come. I think it was probably the same one that tells you and I that we're naked before a thrice holy God that told Adam he was naked. It wasn't any surprise to God. God saw right through His attempts to establish His own righteousness. But, you know, I've got a feeling of this, that they could never put on the skins until they took off the fig leaves. They had to be willing to take off the fig leaves before they could ever put on the skins that God had made for them to cover their sin-sick souls. There's some things you're going to have to give up. And there's a lot of folks, I want you to listen carefully, there's a lot of folks that are going to die and split hell wide open because there's some things that they do not want to give up. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about this time in his life. And he describes a few things that he had to give up when he came to know Christ. Now, when we think of things we have to give up when we come to know Christ, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, preacher, we're going to have to give up liquor. We're going to have to give up drugs. We're going to have to give up friends. We're going to have to give up some TV programs or some music or some movies. What did Paul say he had to give up? I don't know that Paul was ever a drinker. I don't know that Paul was ever on drugs. I know one time they left him stoned outside of Lystra. Somebody say amen to that, but I don't think that was the same thing. And uh, I, I don't think Paul was probably sitting around watching bad movies. I don't guess anybody was back then. What did Paul have to give up? Well, listen to what it says in Philippians chapter number 3. Look at verse number 3. Paul says this, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And he describes a few things. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, listen to what he says, those I counted loss for Christ. 
said there's a few things I had to give up. Notice them with me. First off, Paul had to give up his record. He says this, verse number 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul had lived his whole life resting on that. Paul had lived his whole life, there he had sat, raised up at the feet of Gamaliel, learning the truth of the Old Testament rabbinical teachings. All of his life, I'm sure that Paul, he'd be walking uh, down the street or he'd be going through, uh, maybe a Gentile would pass close, maybe a Samaritan would pass by his way and his mama would put her hand on young little Saul's shoulder and pull him a little close, say, no son, don't get near them, you're a Jew, you're not like those Samaritans. Maybe he'd be out playing in the streets and out in the community and maybe he'd come across another little boy that was not a pure Jewish ancestry and mama would reach out the back deck. I guess they've got decks there. I don't know. If if they do, they've probably got screen doors. And she'd push back the screen door and she'd holler out and say, Saul, honey, it's time to come in. He'd get a little closer. She'd say, I told you not to play around them kids. They're not like you are. You've got to be a teenager. I don't know if Paul was ever married. There's a lot of speculation, debate about that. He's a Pharisee, which would suggest that he was, but he didn't have a wife around him, which would suggest that he wasn't. Somebody say amen to that. But whatever his situation in life, no doubt Paul was a teenager like the rest of us. And maybe Paul would go out and sit and flirt with other little girls. Listen, and that shouldn't make us nervous, by the way. Listen, I'm more worried about the boys that aren't interested in other girls. Amen? And maybe maybe he'd sidle up beside some girl and all of a sudden there'd be Mama. <laughs> there'd be Mama of Tarsus right there. And she'd say, Honey, come a little closer. You know, I've told you to stay away from girls like that. Maybe as he got to be an older man, he got to think to himself, You know, I'm really somebody. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. When I look at my life, I see everything. I've had the best raising. I've had the best opportunities. I've gone to the best schools. I've sat at the best teacher's feet. I've had every opportunity. I've never been tainted like those Gentiles out there. Listen, I'm I'm not some half-breed like them Samaritans out there. Listen, I'm really somebody. You know who he was? On the road to Damascus, the light all of a sudden beams from the glory of heaven. And knocked off of the high horse of his self-righteousness, he lays on the ground. (laughs) And God says, Saul, Saul, that persecutest me, who art thou that kickest against the pricks? God looked down from heaven. He said, I don't see a Hebrew of Hebrews. I see a man persecuting and rejecting Jesus Christ. I look down from heaven, God said, and I don't see a man that's got it all together. I see a man that's just moments away from falling down into a devil's hell. I look down at the Apostle Paul. I don't see the man that sat at the feet of Gamaliel, but I see the man that held the coats of the men that stoned Stephen. God looked down from heaven and said, Son, listen, you may look like much to the world, but you're just a lost sinner to me. Paul said, I had to agree with him. I had to agree with him. I had to acknowledge that that was Jesus whom I persecuted. That was the one who I was fighting against. Let me tell you something. Somebody may look at themselves and say, Boy, I'm somebody. I'm a member of a Baptist church. (laughs) Well, you hang around them long enough, you'll just quit telling people that. Somebody say amen to that. That don't mean much. I'm really somebody. I was raised in a preacher's home. You ever met a preacher's kid? Oh, come on now. We got a few in here. (laughs) Jane was testifying because George is one. <laughs> Boy, I'm really somebody. No, you know what you are. 
you're a lost sinner just like everybody else. And you may look at you, and everybody else may look at you and say, boy, you're somebody. But God looks down from heaven and sees one that's rejecting his dear, precious son. Paul had to give up his record. I want you to notice the next thing in Philippians chapter 3. Look what it says. Uh, he says, in Hebrew of Hebrews, touching the, or he says, as touching the law, in the next phrase, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Let me say that Paul had to give up his record, but he had to give up his religion if he was ever going to come to know Christ. It's interesting the way Paul describes it because he gives a positive and a negative. He says this, as touching the law, a Pharisee. That's who I ran with. And concerning zeal, persecuting the church. That's who I didn't run with. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I hung around the right people and I hated the right people. I was in that religious crowd. You know, to a lot of folks, that's all that church is. Just a crowd they run with. Just a religion. It, it, it's no doubt. And, and I, uh, one of the reasons I like pastoring poor people is I know it ain't going to be all about business contacts. Somebody say amen to that. A lot of big churches, and, and not all, not all of them are bad. Not, I'm, not, I'm not being critical just of the size of the church, but a lot of them, you know people, and I know people, the only reason they go in the house of God is they think they can get some insurance policy out of it, or they think they can get some client out of it, or they think they can get some kind of network, some connection out of it. As far as going there to meet with God, that's the farthest thing from their heart and mind. They're going there to hang around the right people. But listen, they're also going there because a lot of churches like yours and mine, they think that we're crazy. And they don't want to hang around the wrong people. They want just enough religion that they're not looked down on, but they don't want enough religion that it can change their life. They, they don't mind hanging around that crowd. They'll go out and, and drink and carry on on Saturday night and then come into the house of God on Sunday morning and sing a bunch of old dead songs or a bunch of new uh, dead rock songs. They don't mind hanging around that crowd. They don't mind that measure of religion. But they don't want to be around those fanatics. Somebody help me. They don't want to be around those fanatics now that actually live what that Bible says, that actually lets that Bible change and direct their life. Oh, they've got religion. You know, before a man ever gets saved, he's got to quit leaning on religion. You've heard the story, and I've told it before, and you've probably heard it from somebody other than me as well as me. But you've probably no doubt heard the story of a man that was out drowning in the middle of the ocean. Well, not the middle of the ocean. That'd be pretty far out. Somebody say amen. But, <laughs> but you don't have to be far out for it to feel like the middle of the ocean either. And he was out drowning, and a couple of fellows were standing on the seashore. One of them jumped in and swam out to try to rescue the man. And they struggled for a while. And finally, the fellow on the beach, he looked out, and he saw the man that was trying to rescue him. And he reached back hard as he could, and he clubbed the man right in the side of the head. That fellow fell limp. And the guy that was rescuing him grabbed him, wrapped his arms around him, kicked his way back to shore, pulled him on. Made sure he was all right. And the guy that was standing there, he was puzzled by that. Why would he do such a thing? And he said to the man, he said, I saw what you did out there. This man was drowning, and you wrenched back, and you hit him hard as you could. You knocked him out. Why would you do such a thing? And the man who had had experience in such things, he looked at him and he said this, as long as he was trying to save himself, he was going to drown both of us. His kicking, he was going to kick me. His uh, flinging his arms, he was going to hit me. And if I had gotten knocked out, we both would have been drowned. So I had to knock him out so that I could get him back to shore. You know, for a man to ever be saved, he's got to quit trying to save himself. That, that, that's where, listen, that's where we get a lot of this half-church crowd. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about there was a time in this country where they allowed, you understand, used to there was a state religion even in this country. Amen? 
used to, there was a state religion even in this uh, country, and they, they had these half-church laws where, uh, you know, a person could be a member of that church even if they hadn't been saved just by their relationship uh, with a parent or a grandparent that was saved and was a member uh, of that church. And, you know, uh, that crowd, that crowd that thinks they're going to help Jesus save them, they're going to die and go to hell. For if you're leaning on self, you're not leaning on the Savior. In fact, if you're leaning on anything other than Him, you're not leaning on Him. I see that Paul was going to have to give up his religion. Then notice the next phrase, the next thing that he says. He says, touching the law of Pharisee. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He says this, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says this, not the righteousness which is of the law. He says the righteousness which is in the law. Let me say this, that you're going to have to give up your record and your religion, but you're going to have to give up your righteousness if you're ever going to have his righteousness. Why did Paul say the righteousness which is in the law? Well, he couldn't say the righteousness which is of the law, because if he said that, he couldn't have said he was blameless. But you know what he did, what a lot of people do. They pick the things that they want. And it's always funny to me. To most people, the things that are important to God when it comes to living for Him just happen to be the things that we have a good handle on. Somebody say amen to that. It's amazing that we never think God is too upset with the besetting sins that we have. It's always somebody else's sins that God's so upset about. But our sins, God seems to be pretty forgiving and tolerant and patient with. It's always somebody else that has the problem. And Paul says, in my mind, I may not have been keeping everything, but I was keeping a lot of things. And the things that I thought that mattered to God were the things that I had a good handle on. And so when I looked at my life, I thought I was blameless. It's interesting that he does not say spotless or sinless. He says blameless. You know what the measure is? A lot of times we say this, I'm better than most. You know what we're saying? We're saying nobody else can point a finger at me. Well, you're forgetting about somebody. You're forgetting about him who wrote that law with his very finger. And when he points at your life, he is sinless. He is spotless. He is righteous. He's not just the best of the crowd. He's not just the best till one gets here. He's a thrice holy God. And you may be blameless in a Baptist church. You may be blameless in your workplace. You may be blameless in your family. But if you've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not blameless before the throne of God. He looks at your life and he sees sin and he sees stain. Paul said, I had to give that up. But listen to what he says. I like this. Verse number 7. But what things were gained to me, he said, those I counted lost for Christ. I just let go of those things. They didn't matter anymore. They weren't important to me anymore. Yeah, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So what? I was on my way to hell. Yes, concerning uh, the law, I was a Pharisee, but who cares? Uh, they make a twice-fold the child of hell when they make a Pharisee. And he says, I was a twice-fold child of hell. He says, as touching the law, I was blameless, but who cares? Here's the blessed Son of God, and He's not spoken to the other men that are around me. He's spoken to me. He's not dealing... He, listen, He may deal with you, uh, but how He deals with you is none of my concern. Uh, the reality is He's dealt with me on December 1st, 1997. He spoke to my heart, to my life. He looked at Toby Weber and said, Son, you're lost and dying without Christ. So where do you stand with Him? Or will you hold on to those things? Let me say this, and I'm, I'm done. I'm going to see how many times you'll let me say that before you get mad. He says, I just let them go. Let me say there are some things that must be seen before that 
zealous but lost man can be saved. There are some things that must be surrendered before that zealous but lost man can be saved. But let me say, there are some things that must be submitted to before that lost man can be saved. Paul says it this way, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You know, the reason we hang on to those things is we don't want to face life without them. A lot of lost people, they hang on to that record. Well, I'm the child of a preacher, or my granddaddy was a deacon, or I was raised in church. They hang on to that because they don't want to think about what they are without those things. Let me tell you something this morning. Uh, if I broke down on God, if I got in the ditch, if I got out of church tomorrow, if, if, if Wall Ridge Baptist Church wouldn't even whisper my name anymore, if my family turned their back on me and said, what he's done is just too wicked, it's too awful, it's too wretched, if my own parents wouldn't even open the door when I came over, if my entire life fell to pieces, if my record was gone, if my religion was gone, if my attempts at righteousness were gone, when all those things are gone, you say, what are you, preacher? I'm still a child of God. Though my mother and father, though they may forsake me, the Lord will hold me up, help me up, lift me up. Though all those things might be gone. But you know, a lot of people don't want to think about that because they know if all those things were gone, there's nothing there. There's no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, you've got to let all those things go, but then here's what you have to do. And he names three things that have to be submitted to. First off, you've got to submit to the supremacy of the cross. Look at verse number 4. Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. We could spend hours talking about that, but we won't take hours. But suffice it to say this, that the cross of Calvary is far better to any attempts at righteousness that we could ever, ever exert. When you see that he's done something far greater than you ever could do, I almost, I would almost have to take the liberty to preach a whole other sermon to say it exactly how I want to say it. But when you see the precious Son of God, Him who knew no sin, Him who did no sin, and Him who in Him was no sin, when you see Him who is the express image of God's glory, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, when you see Him that raised the dead, that opened blinded eyes, that loosed deaf ears and dumb tongues, when you see Him that only ever loved those that were around Him, when you see Him that was the very power of the creative God, Him that flung all of creation out into existence, when you see Him suffering the just for the unjust and hanging naked and ashamed upon a rugged cross, when you see what He's given to you, how could you ever think you could give enough to God or give more than He's given? (laughs) Go ahead. Work at the soup kitchen. It don't mean much next to Calvary. Join every church you can find. It don't mean much next to Calvary. Be baptized so many times that they drown you. It don't mean much next to Calvary. Try to be a good person if you wish to. You'll never do what Calvary's done. You've got to submit yourself to that truth and that reality. And you've got to acknowledge that He's done more for you than you could ever do for yourself. You've got to submit yourself to the Supremacy of the cross. I want you to notice the next few verses. Verses 5 through 7. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, 
Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. You have to submit yourself to the supremacy of the cross, but you have to submit yourself to the sufficiency of the cross. It's interesting that Paul quotes this. This is actually, it's a beautiful application that Paul makes of these passages. Because he is quoting uh, the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is getting ready to die and he is exhorting the nation of Israel that they don't have to go back up on Mount Sinai to get the law again. Uh, They don't have to go uh, far off into the sea or into the deepest places of the earth to bring up the Word of God again. But that the Word of God has already been given and it's nigh unto them. It's even in their heart. And all they have to do is just believe it and trust in it. And God would be a God to them. But the Holy Ghost makes an application to the cross of Calvary that is astounding. For he says this, that the righteousness which is of faith does not try to pull Christ from his throne and put him on the cross again. Nor does the righteousness which is by faith try to place him in a tomb again and raise him from the dead again. The righteousness which is of faith. You know what it does? Just as Moses said to the children of Israel, don't go looking for another law because the law is here. The righteousness which is of faith says this, I'll not go looking for something else to do because the Savior has already done for me all that is necessary. There are two kinds of schools of thought in this world. Every religion, it matters not what it is. It could be Taoism or Buddhism or Islam or or Judaism or or Hinduism. It could be the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, go down the line. Every religion that you could imagine, it says one thing and one thing alone. Do, 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 do. But on the cross of Calvary, Christ lifted His head and He said, It is finished. He said, It is done. You know what you're going to have to come to terms with to ever be born again? (laughs) You're going to have to acknowledge that what Christ did on the cross is enough. Listen, Christ, (laughs) you don't need Christ and baptism to be saved. Oh, I didn't get enough help there. Come on. You don't need Christ and baptism to be saved. You don't need Christ and church membership to be saved. You don't need Christ and good works to be saved. For anything that we seek to add to the finished work of Calvary is to look to the Son of God and to say, why don't you come down from your throne and die again for it was not sufficient. It's to say, why don't you go and bury our sins in the past as you did once before and raise up in power and in glory for what you did before was not enough. We've got to come to terms with the sufficiency of the cross. When you say, I need my salvation, but I also have to try real hard, you're implying that the cross of Calvary was not enough and that your good works are necessary. And finally, I want you to notice this, and I'm done. Look at verse number 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. What does it say? Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Let me say that you've got to submit yourself to the supremacy of the cross, that what Christ did on Calvary is far greater than your meager and feeble attempts at good works. You've got to submit yourself to the sufficiency of the cross, that it doesn't take uh, the cross and your good works, or the cross and your baptism, or the cross and your church membership. But finally, and a lot of folks struggle here, you've got to submit yourself to the simplicity of the cross. I think about Naaman in the Old Testament. Naaman is a leper. He has no hope. He's going to die a miserable death. Literally the worst end of life that could be imagined at that time was to die the death of a leper. And as he is lamenting his condition and his situation, a little maiden girl overhears him and says, You know, Naaman, there's a prophet by the name of Elijah. And if you'll go to him, he'll heal you. He goes and Naaman is a general of the Syrian army. He, he is an important man. And he rolls into town with, with all of the, the pomp and the circumstance that could ever impress old Elisha. And when he gets there, Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. But Elisha's servant named Gehazi comes out to meet Naaman. And Elisha tells Gehazi, he says, I want you to go out and tell that man there that if he'll go and if he'll dunk in the river seven times, then he'll be clean. When Naaman hears that, he gets angry. He says to the little servant girl and to his servants, he said, how many rivers and how many better rivers are in our land? And he wants me to get down here and dunk in this old muddy river down here. I'm an important man. Why does he not come out and speak a miracle over me? Why does he not come out and anoint me? Why does he not come out and make a big to-do about my situation? There with him, they look at him and they say, you know, if that's all it takes, I believe it's worth doing. Naaman, in a calm, paused moment, he says, you know, I guess you're right. And he dunks seven times. On the seventh time, he comes up clean, healed of his leprosy. Naaman had the same problem that a lot of folks today have. Could it really be that simple? Is that? Could it really be that all I have to do is confess myself a sinner and ask God's forgiveness and believe on Christ. Could it really be that simple? Oh, yes, it is that simple. Do you know why? Because the difficult thing's already been done for you. God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. God doesn't need your ugly and feeble attempts at righteousness. He needs only your submission to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He needs only that you'd bow the knee to Him and bow the heart to Him. And call upon Christ. And if you'll do that, you know what He says? I'll save you. Thou shalt be saved.